Please be seated. Themes rise up out of gospel texts. For instance, Matthew's chapter 22 offers one that I refer to frequently about the greatest commandment to love God and self and neighbor. I find that given even the least chance, this concept becomes a guide toward how all the other sayings and doings in the Gospels are best interpreted. The real bonus being that what else gets shaped is our experience of life and ultimately everything we bring into it. What we believe to be the love of God and what we mean by the equalized love of neighbor and self become twin lenses through which all of life is viewed and with enough gentle return to this gospel theme and the repetition of loving intention it invites, it can actually become difficult not to live and move and have our being under its influence, the influence of loving intention. I'm revisiting this theme of, in Matthew's gospel with some new energy because of the way it converses with what's risen up out of today's excerpt from John's chapter 17, which is one of my favorite depictions in all the Gospels, probably because, in addition to thought-provoking content, the moment always appears to me to have a cinematic quality. <clears throat> Once again, the setting is the upper room where the Last Supper and a whole bunch more takes place, you know, like a couple of post-resurrection appearances by Jesus. But today's snapshot captures what happens just before the arrest that will lead to the crucifixion. Supper's over. So's the foot washing. In fact, the long after-dinner farewell discourse has just come to an end, and Jesus, gazing heavenward, speaks directly to God. It's like he does this in order to be overheard, which he does pretty frequently, so it's not hard to imagine that it's meant to add emphasis. Just imagine what it must have been like to be one of the disciples in that room, to be within arm's reach of your teacher, your most beloved friend, as he talks to God about you. In this particular moment, it's almost impossible not to imagine them all awash in feelings of safety and love. And yet it's pretty clear from the rest of the story that they were also in the process of trying to manage a considerable mix of conflicting beliefs, huge swings in levels of certainty about the implications surrounding him who has been called the Son of Man, the Holy One of God, Messiah, the one who not long ago a crowd tried to make into a king because of some magic loaves. And still, here they sit in candle glow, very nearly holding their breath while Jesus draws them into spiritual embrace and makes them privy to not only a loving intimacy of unimaginable depth, but the very ideal of God's desire for humanity, that they may be one as we are one. This is the theme that for me rises up 
out of John's chapter 17, bearing great power and the potential to become another lens through which all things might best be seen and interpreted in scripture and in the world. And very much like the implications surrounding Jesus in the upper room, those surrounding his themes are vast and various, having the same capacity to affect human saying and doing and being in ways ranging from what is globally experienced all the way down to the depths of personal feeling from which everything in the world is made manifest. Yes, everything, which is a lot. To me, John's rendering of this theme, and I really do believe it is a theme of love, comes off like it's the greatest commandment's twin sister. And while they both offer an invitation to a lifetime of personal exploration, today we're going to look at a single example and tease out its implications as a way of starting us down a path that has, I think you may agree, some significance. Yeah, it was challenging at first to find a useful example. I mean, we're in John 17, so I reviewed, I feel I had to review several theological works until a bunch of vibrations began, and I started to imagine rolling out a reflection on how we're called to no less than reformation of our faith, an idea that still energizes me with echoes of Reverend William Barber's rallying cry to that branch of Christianity aligned with white supremacy, you no longer have the right to speak for us. But then that began to seem a little too us against them for today's theme of that we hold maybe one. But in that same insight, I found I still can't get away from the theme I was so wrapped up in a few weeks ago about how nonviolence is the only acceptable response to violence, which turns out to be a little easier to line up with today's theme. Well, it wasn't long before I found myself wondering aloud about nonviolent response during a recent evening prayer homily wondering about how deeply humanity is emotionally invested in consequences and accountability, in punishment for violent behavior. Sometimes, after evening prayer concludes, the Zoom room moves into a little hangout and chat time, sometimes even chatting about interpretation of the readings. Now, the nonviolence thing is a pretty big issue. So our talk was a little tentative at first, and there was a pause, and then sweet and rather soft, but full of power, a voice rose up like a gospel theme and asked, Father Ed, what would you say to a woman who has survived violent abuse? And I was struck with real force by what I can only describe as a jarring spiritual awakening to just how radical and unyielding the Jesus teachings are. Even love themes like today, maybe especially them, that they all may be one. In the abstract, it sounds lovely, but what's at stake? What must be eliminated or managed into having non-directive influences upon the human condition? 
holding the hypothetical abuser by the hand, I walked through one of my own interpretations relating to loving my neighbor. I heard myself counseling from this very pulpit that I don't think Jesus intends for us to repeatedly put ourselves in harm's way. Shake off the dust from your feet and move on, I said. I mean, even in today's lesson, he says, I'm asking on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you gave me. But you know, because he says this in the same prayer as they all may be one, and because I feel such a deep sense of connection between that sentiment and the greatest command to love and love and love, the lenses of interpretation have me very curious about God's ideal for us. Shake the dust off your feet. Okay, well, I'm guessing there's a difference between doing that with anger and spitefulness and doing it with compassion and hope. So there's that. Can, can you feel the difference in how those two options resonate spiritually? Because I think that is the knowledge. That's the kind of imagination that's at the foundation of all that follows in what may well appear at first to be disorienting, if not an utter impossibility. Does nonviolent response mean there's no such thing as consequences? The breadth of my uncertainty here is a big part of that jarring spiritual awakening. I mean, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus describes a process to be used in conflict resolution, one-on-one, -on -one, two or more-on-one, and then the matter brought before the entire community, but he never, ever advocates for an individual to take matters into their own hands and, with escalating anger and fear, use violence. Nothing in the Gospels suggests that he thinks that's the appropriate response. No matter how humans have historically tried to justify a skewed greater good. I think Jesus, and you'd have to expect this from God, envisions for the world consequences constructs that look a lot more like restorative justice. Groups of people discerning together. The word punishment entirely stricken from the lexicon. Discerning and with the express input of all parties involved, the response most felicitous of true goodness. Groups of people completely committed to relationship with God, or better yet, with unification, which is a field of commitment not owned by any faith construct, yet pretty much desired by all. What if consequences looked like this group of people, a council, entirely committed to goodness and unification, deciding what to do in cases of intimate partner violence? Could such a completely unrealistic reality ride on the same current as shaking dust from sandals without spite or vengefulness? I know it may seem at first that punishment of a violent one is the only thing that could satisfy the aggrieved. And in keeping with what I know of Jesus, I don't mean to suggest forcing the issue. But 
holding the tragically deep flaws of modern American justice systems to one side for a moment, I wonder if Jesus' vision doesn't include the possibility, remote as it may seem at first, of such commitment to true goodness coming at last to be. Where a council has members so evolved as to make even the idea of consequences entirely different. Where the one who has offended is surrounded by a human presence so loving that the result is a form of healing that helps raise the one who is surrounded by love to new levels of goodness. I think this is the ideal Jesus puts before us. And it is nothing short of the establishment of the reign of God in the hearts of all people by the Spirit's power and her guidance of the individual believer. It sounds like that's what he's always meant by the gift of the Spirit and not leaving us orphaned. And yes, I, I do still believe that if he was walking among us in the flesh today, he would not be organizing protests for social justice causes because he's only interested in you and your interior experience of his ideal. And I really believe that his ideal, laughable though it may seem to us, isn't laughable to him that it must always remain the standard to be sought, to be discovered in its many and various increments of awkward, halting manifestation, even over tracts of time. Many people like to say that Jesus' ideal concept has largely failed, that a veneer of church has taken its place, a church that itself has a startlingly ironic history of misinterpreting Christly unification, while at the same time fostering dynamics of division, us against them. But what if the entire church phenomenon could be just the larval stage of a thwarted spiritual rule, a chrysalis that will carry us through this material age and over into a more spiritual expression where Jesus' teachings can enjoy fuller opportunities for development. Because make no mistake, there is, in the teachings of Jesus, an eternal nature which will not let them remain fruitless forever in the hearts of those who think on them. Jesus' ideal concept is still alive. That we are here is proof of that. And it will eventually and certainly come forth again and again and again until the mutual indwelling he talks to God about becomes the reality for everybody. Amen.